Welcome to the 15th episode of Steel Watching, which is a podcast for Remington Steel fans. My name is Sarah, and I am one of the, am I a host or a presenter? What am I? Oh, you pick. <laughs> <laughs> Can I? I'm one of yes. the hosts. <laughs> I'm Eric. I'm your other host. And slash presenter. Slash presenter. <laughs> Find me that way. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about the episode to stop a steal. So this one first aired on February 11th, 1983. And this one was also written by Glenn Gordon Karen. I think the last one was too, was it not? Yes. Yeah. So I have some thoughts on that when we get there, but it was directed by Sydney Hayers. And for this one, I went with the TV guide listing from Judith's book. And the TV guide listing said, Laura and Remington don't know it, but they are working the same case. Laura and Murphy for the jeweler robbed of a $2 million diamond and steal for the frightened thief who has to explain it to the syndicate that someone beat him to it. So, yeah, I think that's pretty straightforward in terms of a Damn. TV guide summary. <laughs> Any thoughts on that one? No, I think it's a good summary. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, before we get into the discussion of the episode, can we touch on some comments that came sure. in? Yeah. You remember we talked in the episode, uh, stealing the show about the use of old movies and old ah, Hollywood yes. actors and such. We got a couple of comments, one of which I have to apologize for because I read it. I wanted to get back to it, but I wasn't in a position to do anything about it at the time. And now I can't find it. And I don't know who sent it. And I don't know exactly what they said, but I, I remember the gist of it. This is what happens but, when you get old. Yeah. Like, you know what being old is like. <laughs> anyway, we got one comment from Lara Z and her comment was to your request that some of the movies mentioned be the ones the actress playing the B movie actress played in. I think there would have been more rewriting necessary. There's the line about I die in all my movies. And of course the director who plans to write three deaths into one film. Won't that be the best? Her hysteria <laughs> is also about being threatened and attacked and the implication is that her mind is going and she's reliving roles which is a red herring but not possible if they went with osterwald's actual films which had a bit more variety okay so first of all thank you laura for the comment yes more writing would have been necessary on it rewriting yeah. would have been necessary on for it. for sure and it might not have been possible on this particular episode but i think there could have been opportunities at other points in the series, but they didn't take it up on it. Well, they did have one episode later on. There's one episode and mm -hmm. I'm blanking on the name at the moment, but mm -hmm. they do have like Lloyd Nolan and Virginia. Right. Man, like Cast there is an steel. episode. That's it. That's it. Yeah. That, yes. that one was very much kind of in that vein. Yes. And that was what the other comment was in reference to was that cast and steel did bring in these old Hollywood actors. My point, and I, perhaps I didn't, really do a really good job of explaining it even though in my mind it was a brilliant explanation it, you know when it got out to the mouth it probably didn't make as much sense is that in cast and steel lloyd nolan dorothy lamore virginia mayo were playing basically themselves somewhat fictionalized but basically playing themselves yeah in the murder she wrote episode that i had referenced which was days dwindled down they actually it was like a sequel to the movie Strange Bargain. So it was very, very tied in. And what I was looking for was either something like that or where 
the actor isn't playing a fictionalized version of themselves. They're playing a fictional character that has elements of their actual career blended in. Shows like The Office with Creed Bratton, Bones with Billy Gibbons did that a little bit. But I was thinking more, well, here, think of it this way. You got a piece of cake that's got some frosting on it. Or you've got <laughs> a big pile of frosting that's got a little bit of cake underneath it. The Lloyd yeah. Nolan, Virginia Mayo is the cake with a little bit of frosting. It's the yeah. reality of the actors with a little bit of fiction mixed in. What I was looking for yeah. was the frosting with just a little bit of cake where it's a fictional character, <laughs> but they bring in elements of the actual yeah. actor's history and make that in and just kind of do a blending thing. So, yeah, great comments. Thank you, Laura and unknown person. Great comments. Absolutely. And I apologize if I wasn't really clear on what I was thinking when I was saying that. <laughs> it's okay. No, no, no. Oh, and as an aside, Murder, She Wrote, this is the second time we've mentioned this, I think. Maybe the third. Oh, no, we, we've mentioned Murder, She Wrote a lot. Okay. <laughs> Keeps coming up. If, Keeps coming up. <laughs> yes, it does. If anybody is a Murder, She Wrote fan and is looking for a podcast dedicated to that show that has a, kind of a similar feel to what we do here, check out Cabot Cove Confidential. Now, this isn't a paid promotional. This isn't a swap or anything like that. It's just a podcast that I've been listening to and I enjoy because I am a fan of Murder, She Wrote. And it's a very enjoyable podcast. And if you want to take a look at it, you can go to cabotcoveconfidential.com. So again, not a paid promo, not a traded promo, just me saying, hey, if you like Murder, She Wrote, check it out. Anyway, back to our real episode. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the regularly scheduled programming. Yes. Boy, that's been a long time since anybody's heard that, isn't it? Right? (laughs) Before I I get into the actual episode, I was just, one of the things that I had mentioned a while back was that I wanted to pay attention to writers and note what sort of style similarities and what things that they like to bring. because. This is one of those shows where a lot of the writers were independent and wrote spec scripts and just sort of sent them in. But there were the odd few writers like Robin Bernheim and a few others that wrote multiple scripts and had their own sort of takes on the characters. And getting two Glenn Gordon Karen written episodes back to back, I started to see a pattern that I hadn't seen before. And this is... One of the things that I find really interesting about doing this podcast is that now I'm looking for things that I, I'm not necessarily looking for when I'm just watching it to be entertained. Sure. And his take on Murphy is, it, 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 we'll get to some of the specifics of it, but I think one of the reasons why Murphy rubs me the wrong way in this episode and in the previous one is that I don't like his take on Murphy. Okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, and I'll get to specifics of it as to why, but I did notice that he's writing him a bit differently. And so just keep that in mind. And then if you, you know, you might disagree with me, but we'll get there and then we'll see whether or not this matches up to my sort of where my brain went with this. (laughs) And, you know, to Glenn's credit, he does at least write for Murphy as opposed to some of the other writers who just... Oh, Murphy. Yeah. Let's give him a line. Yeah. Agreed. Or he doesn't even appear at all. At least Glenn Gordon Karen does yep. write for Murphy. He does use the character. We may not totally agree with how he uses the character. Yeah. That's a secondary 100%. issue. The fact is, 
he at <laughs> least uses him. And that I do appreciate about Glenn. No, I definitely appreciate it because his... I'm a Murphy I can fan, under- if, if you can't tell. I, I don't... It's funny. I don't dislike Murphy, but it depends on the episode. And I think that this is one of the reasons why James Reed basically said, use me or I'm gone, was because he was so underused. And then the few times where they do use him, it doesn't come across like they really know who he is. And so maybe that's it. Which all is along the point you just made about the way Glenn Gordon Curran handles yeah. the character. So Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> so we'll I just wanted there. to some opening thoughts and then we'll, we'll get sure. to the specific places of it. So our opening scene, we've got, it's a big, yeah, I, I'm assuming this is an actual place in LA. I don't, the Queen I, I've Elizabeth? been to LA yeah. once. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've only been to LA once <laughs> yeah. and, and we didn't go there. So it's a big boat. <laughs> That's what I know. Yes. It's a big boat, and, um, but it, it looks like it's been, it's a fancy hotel, correct? Yeah, the Queen Elizabeth okay. was an old, uh, old-time ocean liner that was retired and converted into a hotel and resort. Okay. Yeah, I did. See, I, I knew it was an ocean liner. I just didn't realize it was in L.A. as a, as a hotel now. <laughs> yeah. I think it part. went through a couple different um, hands over the years. It right. was owned by a lot of different people. And yeah, it, it its ownership yeah. has, has been kind of checkered, but it's there. And anybody can, I, I, I actually took a look at their website and you can make reservations huh. for just dinners or get rooms or whatever. Interesting. Yeah. If I'm ever in LA, I might do that. <laughs> yeah. The, it would be the fun. last time we were, the last time I was there, I was 23. And I remember wanting to drive down the highway that they filmed Speed, the movie. And I remember making it a necessity that we drive by the Century Towers, which we did. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> those are the two things I remember the most. Driving by Century City and going, there they are. That's where Remington Steele and Laura live. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, anyway, so it starts out with this big boat. <laughs> and yes. Maury Singer. So this is a, a weird thing that I noticed as well. His name mm-hmm. is spelled differently when he writes it down in the little book later on in the episode. It's spelled differently than it is in the script. Oh, okay. And I was spelling it differently. Three, there were three, like, because I was spelling it when I was typing out my notes, I was spelling it M-A-U-R-Y. And then I got to the bit where he writes his name down and he writes it M-A-U-R-I-E. And then in the script, it's spelled M-O-R-R-I-E. So I yeah, don't know. Which is how I've got it in my notes. <laughs> yeah. How do you have it? <laughs> I, I've got it M-O-R-R-I-E in my, all my okay, notes. Okay, so you, yeah. you, yours matches the script. Um, anyway, that was just a random aside that that popped into my head but he because i'm looking at it in my notes it's spelled differently <laughs> so he's walking through in a tux looks a bit nervous goes to the bathroom tells the bathroom attendant there's a wedding down the corridor that's gotten out of hand and the bride's sister is dancing naked on the bandstand um, <laughs> so that he knows that this is gonna get a kid out of the way right i love his um naked he's like well when you get to my age you know naked you don't care but you know, <laughs> and <laughs> the kid takes off and he opens like the janitor's closet, gets inside. I had a question. Some, Would there really yeah. be a door from the men's room I leading into the bowels too. of the ship? Literally in my notes was where, where did this come from? <laughs> Cause like he just crawls right into the, yeah, it, it, it felt very diehard if diehard was silly. Um, <laughs> so, 
You mean it's not? Well, I mean it is, but I, I saw I saw a thing on the internet that said something along the lines of Die Hard is Bruce Willis creeping around a tower trying to avoid Alan Rickman. It's not a Christmas movie. It's a Harry Potter movie. And I was like, yeah, yeah that, that tracks. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so he gets in there. He pulls out some sort of electronic gadget, which helps shut down the alarm system. They crawl out of a vent and there's two men with him and they're getting into the safe. They're clearly planning a heist. They crawl out of the vent into Herod's Jewelers. Lock the doors, pull down the drapes, use a blowtorch to open the safe. And when they get there, there's nothing in the cases. Can I comment on Frank and Louie, his compatriots? If Maury is supposed to be the brains of the operation, he's the guy that came up with the score. Would he really let them shove him to the side like they did? I mean, they were rather condescending toward him. Oh, they were. Take a nap. Hey, take a nap, old man. Yeah, that was rude. (laughs) Yes, yes. It just... It was like, at that point, I'm sorry, Maury, at that point, you should have figured out something was wrong. Something was wrong. Yeah. Well, actually, maybe prior to that when Considine insisted Insisted? on hiring the crew, but that's a later discussion. It's coming up later. That's the only reason I can think that Murphy doesn't, or sorry, Murphy, Maury doesn't (laughs) tell these guys to go to hell is because they are supplied by Considine. And Mm -hmm. maybe he's just afraid of rocking that boat, pardon the pun. That could be. That could be. Okay. Point taken. (laughs) Another thing that I noticed about this scene, the music is really good. The score, it's really sprightly and bouncy and whimsical and cute. And I really enjoyed it. It kind of made the scene a lot more fun. So yeah, I usually notice these things when they're, when they're done, done really well. Um, (laughs) And you know, it's, it's funny. It's to me, as I listened to that music, it had just a touch of like the Jewish uh, sound yeah. to the music and that's something that oh what's his name the guy that did the theme music <sighs> i can see his face pink panther <laughs> uh anyway oh, oh yeah yeah i know who you're talking about yeah i can't think of his but, name but i know who you mean henry mancini he when he wrote the themes for laura and remington the remington theme has that touch of irish to it yep it's not heavy it does but it's there and it's the same with this music here. It's got that touch of a Jewish type sound. It's, it's yeah. not heavy. It's not in your face, but it's kind of underlined there. And that, yeah, you're right. That's a nice touch. It very much fits Maury's character. It does. He's, he's very sweet. Even he, he's a thief, but he's a very sweet guy. He's, he's very silly. He's funny. He's, he's likable. He's very likable. Um, and I, I like that because, <laughs> Some of the characters in previous episodes have not been so likable. So we've at least got Maury. Yes. <laughs> um, a bad so guy yeah, we, we can cheer for. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a couple of questions about Herod's Jewelers because Herod's is a department store in, in England, in the UK. And it's a very upscale department store in the UK. And so I got very confused when you've got Mr. Herod. And I wondered if they were aware of Harrods as a, like a brand or if this was just a name they picked out and accidentally it ended up being the same, right? Because I thought, Oh, okay. They're in Harrods thinking it was Harrods department store, this upscale British brand. And we're thinking did they even have those in the States. I don't think they do, but then they, obviously they're meeting with Mr. Harrod and Harrods is not a exclusively a jewelry store in the UK. So I don't know. I was, he, somebody may have been familiar with it and used that because 
they thought it had a a nice upscale, uh, sophisticated sound to it. Yeah. And that association with the brand, or it could just be, as you said, that they, they thought it up and it just happened to be a a coincidence. You know, a lot of people have the same last name. A lot of people have the same first name and a lot of businesses have similar, if not nearly identical names. Uh, You go back in history, the McDonald's brothers. Oh yeah. The restaurant called McDonald's. And after a few years, they sold it to a guy named Ray Kroc who turned it into this gigantic mega corporation. Well, after they sold that, they opened another hamburger place called the McDonald brothers or something to that effect. So I mean, that, that got ugly uh, legally, (laughs) but, but I mean, you know, there are businesses that. that do that. And, there are businesses that have virtually identical names in different regions of the country or different parts of the world. And as long as they don't overlap in terms of their right. market and such, it seems to work. True. So, but to your question, I don't know if this was an intentional uh, reference and nod to Harrods out of Britain or if it was yeah. just simply, it's a cool sounding name. It makes it sense. It's a cool sounding name. Um, you know, somebody had <laughs> it up on that. the board as a name to be used and they picked that. And they used it. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So Laura and Murphy, they're meeting with, with Mr. Herod. He tells them he wants them to keep the theft under wraps. He's pulled inventory from other stores to cover it so it doesn't look like he was robbed. And he isn't sure how anybody knew that they were keeping a 60 carat flawless D-stone diamond worth $2 million. So... I looked into what a D-carat flawless diamond is because I was like, that means nothing to me. All of that. <laughs> I know what carrots are. Usually the orange things that you munch on. Bugs Bunny loves them, but I'm not a diamond What's up, person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't own a diamond. I didn't, we didn't do the engagement ring thing. So like, I don't know much about diamonds, period. So I looked into what this was. I don't think people in the so diamond industry really know much about diamonds, but that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, They'll so tell you they do. They will. They absolutely will. Um, <laughs> a D color flawless diamond, according to this website, has the highest color and clarity grade and the biggest price tag. So It then said, can a diamond really be flawless? Although gemological laboratories can assign a diamond a clarity grade of flawless, which is usually marked FL, or internally flawless, which is different, it's marked IF, that only means there are no imperfections visible within the crystal at 10 times magnification. With a more powerful microscope, there would still be imperfections. So while FL and IF diamonds certainly have exceptional clarity, they're not perfect. And then it I looked into the difference between FL and IF, flawless and internally flawless. Internally, flawless and internally flawless will be the same with no imperfections visible. Internally internally flawless diamonds have some surface blemishes or imperfections, though these will never be visible to the eye. These diamonds have similar price ranges, though a top flawless diamond will have a somewhat higher price tag than an internally flawless diamond. Unfortunately, the clarity grade of both diamonds may become damaged with wear. Diamonds famously have a hardness of 10, the hardest mineral in the world. Although nothing but a diamond can scratch a diamond, that doesn't mean they're indestructible. If you hit a diamond with a hammer, it will shatter. So yeah, I know that was a rabbit hole that we didn't need to go down, but I was very interested in why. <laughs> hey, that's that's one of our new slogans. Maybe we'll make it a t-shirt. Yeah. Rabbit hole <laughs> with a picture of a Volkswagen rabbit. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I love it. Rabbit hole. Rabbit. I love it. (laughs) So yeah, he's got a 
a very expensive diamond, 60 carat flawless D-stone diamond, worth $2 million, um, which he was keeping in his store in a ship, which seems dumb. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, which is one of the reasons why he says that the insurance company yeah. doesn't know about it because I'm not supposed to have it here. No, what a stupid place to have it. <laughs> yes. And he he describes the shop, I found this kind of funny, he describes the shop as selling gilt jewelry that you buy your wife in Minneapolis after having an affair on a business trip in LA. <laughs> so I'm not sure you'd want to put that in your marketing, but there you are. <laughs> and, and it also doesn't seem to match up with the idea that he's got a 60 carat flawless yeah, diamond worth a couple million dollars because gilt jewelry is generally not that no, high end i don't not. think no especially I mean, not I, if I've you're never selling bought it, it but. Yeah, i don't <laughs> yeah don't admit have you that. ever gotten any <laughs> no <laughs> but we don't do <laughs> you don't that you don't know of <laughs> yeah that's true that well we don't really do jewelry period so <laughs> um yeah. yeah neither do we <laughs> But uh, yeah, so he says he needs it back in two days as the Persian prince who bought it paid cash and he already spent the cash. What? What did okay, he buy? Can I, can I, well, can I bring up a whole nother issue? Yeah, go for it. Ethics? Question yeah, mark. Right? Are they actually helping a jewelry store owner who embezzled money yep. cover up that embezzlement? Because yep. he says he... What was it? He gambled it away or something like he, that? He spent, he said the commodities market is not what it used to be or something okay. like that. He gambled it away. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's horses, dogs, or commodities. Yeah. It's all gambling. Oh, for sure. It's not his money to spend, at least not until the guy gets his purchase. Right? Yes. And so, yeah. Ethics? Question mark. Yeah. And it's funny because Laura's all high and mighty later about not working for a thief, but is she? I mean, she kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> At least Maury's honest about it. So there's that. An honest thief. <laughs> he is. He, he is an honest. He, he freely admits it. Um, so, yeah, you're right. That ethically, that's questionable. That is very questionable. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a few things that I, I found interesting. Uh, basically, in this scene, we've got the old team back together. Yep. We've got. Murphy and Laura working together. Harrod says, Hey, can we, you know, keep that guy over there out of it? Because, you know, he brings attention where he goes, Well, if you of twist our arms. <laughs> and did I notice just the hint of a grin oh. on Laura's face when Murphy said that? I it was funny because she seemed both eager to keep him away, but also kind of regretful about it. There's moments where she feels guilty. It, it it looks like she feels bad about it. But there's also when Murphy makes that comment, yeah, she kind of she kind of does a little grin, like, okay, yeah, he's out. Good, we can actually work this case without him screaming "murder most foul" or something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, there. And it is the old team back together. Yep. It's Murphy and Laura working together like they did before he showed up in the old days. Yeah, and it kind of leads into what comes in later because I think there's a a nostalgia, I don't know if that's the correct word, but a, kind of a nostalgia feel from Laura sure. about this situation yeah. right here. Yeah. We'll, we'll get, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. We'll, we'll get, get there. there. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll get there. But, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that was, you kind of answered the question that I had because I, I said, do you think she wanted to keep Steele away? Has she finally started him wanting him around on the cases? Because she seems to kind of go back and forth throughout the episode. So it, it does seem like, yes, she she's 
she likes this is the old days she and murphy working together being partners but also she feels bad about keeping him out which we've never seen her feel bad about that before yeah i think she's got mixed feelings yeah and then we've got the scene change <laughs> bernice in the office when maury shows up i love his little hat and sunglasses <laughs> it's very cute. and notice bernice doesn't even bat an no, eye she really when steel takes maury into the office for a consultation yeah has she given up trying to stop him 1, from acting like he's the boss yeah she's just like whatever <laughs> and him coming in going i'm looking for mr metal which is really funny because because steel has been calling her miss wolf all the time right so um, yeah she's about to tell him he's not there yet he comes in and you're right she watches steel take him to his office and doesn't do anything he even says to hold his calls to her as they go into the office so that's cute and i liked how murph or murphy i'm gonna mix them up this whole episode because you've got Murphy <laughs> oh, I am too, and Maury so. and they're so similar. Um, but yeah, Maury's it tells him he has a will problem as in he's going to need one. <laughs> Steel doesn't help him, which is a good line as is when they get into the office and Maury says, do you know anything about professional theft? And that beat that just pause, right? Where Steel kind of like, yeah, I've got a passing familiarity sort of thing. Um, I've read yeah. a few books on the subject, I think is his response. right? Um, <laughs> So yeah, Maury admits to being a thief. He says he quit a few years ago, but his son in Tampa won't speak to him or let him see his grandson. He wants to move to Tampa, but of course needs money. And so when the score fell into his lap, he took it. Only somebody else got there first. And it's interesting because Steele tells him, perhaps the gods were telling you the straight and narrow is the surest path to Tampa. That is an interesting piece of advice coming from him. I had that written down as well. And my question was, was this just polite conversation or is Steele starting to get the message from the gods <laughs> that the straight and narrow might be the surest path to his own Tampa? Your question and my question were almost this, I mean, different wording, but I said, do you think he feels that way now? Has he started to reform? Because yeah, I wondered that same thing. Is he sort of realizing that he wants to keep going in this area because he hasn't, necessarily given up the life of a con man but he's also stayed here for we're now at episode 15 so is he starting to think this is where i want to be this is what i want to do i don't know (laughs) is he starting to see that it brings in unnecessary complications to life maybe (laughs) maybe (laughs) so yeah i don't know if it's a question that's ever really answered but it it, it's interesting how he makes that comment to Mm -hmm. somebody who it was an interesting comment and then Maury reveals that he is an independent thief. He's not connected to organized crime. And he says he had to get permission from those who run the territory and pay 20% of the take. And of course, when Steele asks what 20% of nothing is, Maury says that's a hole in the head. <laughs> so he, <laughs> it's, and this, at that point, it's clear that Maury Singer is another one of Steele's lost causes. Like Sheldon, like all of these sort of, people that make their way to steal and ask for help. He immediately sees someone who needs help and he can't refuse. Of course he does it. Dog syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> of course he does it in his own special way of promising to rallying the troops and shout his innocence from the rooftop. And <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea. No. <laughs> All the rallying and racketing and shouting. It seems like it's going to call a lot of attention to things. Don't you think? <laughs> can we, can we just take a moment and bow before I can't remember his name. The actor playing Maury is 
hilarious. They got it. This is another Sheldon situation where they got the absolute perfect guy for this role. He's funny. He's sympathetic. And and they just play together so well that it's 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 yes. really funny to watch this. It's all the rallying and yeah. the, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I I kind of wonder shouldn't Steele know this that that he I mean this is his this is his territory. He's a thief. He has probably in the past, and we don't know for sure, but he's probably had to get permission from a syndicate or something to pull a job. I would think. Or at least if he hasn't, he knows about doing it because he's been around cons and thieves his whole life. So wouldn't he know that the rallying and the yelling and the whatever is not a good plan? (laughs) Well, you would think so. (laughs) But sometimes I guess the, the idea is that if people know that you know, and other people know that you know, and other people know that other people know <laughs> that whole farcical thing. Yeah. That nothing will happen because everybody knows. So, what's the point in trying to do anything about it? But no, you're right. I mean, that doesn't seem like a really smart move. Yeah. In this situation, at least. Mutually assured destruction. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> That's what you were going for. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. So Maury, he asks Steele to leave the staff and everyone else out of it, which, okay, now we're seeing the setup for the episode because Laura has agreed to Mr. Herod not to bring Steele into her side. It's the same case. And Maury is asking Steele to leave his staff out and just work with him. And Steele seems really giddy about the prospect of having a case all to himself. But after all the rallying and racketing (laughs) and shouting, I mean, does he really rationally think he can pull this off or is it his ego overriding his thinking as was his th- he yeah. wasn't thinking a minute ago when he was talking about you know shouting from the rooftops <laughs> is he not thinking again i mean because the fact that he went down that route and more had to pull him back and say i don't think it's a good idea i mean it just doesn't it doesn't seem like a good idea on steel's no. part <laughs> well but i do think because my question was, do you think this is one area in which Steele is uniquely qualified? It's not like he's being asked to search out a murderer or something. This is something he he did he did for a living. This is an area where he, I guess, would know the people to talk to, and he does to what to an certain extent. Like he knows the first person to go to talk to is Herschel because Herschel set it up, and and he goes from there. So I wonder. I I think his ego obviously plays into it. It always does, but. I think there is a part of this that he is suited for. Well, I think he is suited for this, if we can use the phrase, in an advisory (laughs) capacity. Uh (laughs) In an advisory capacity, because he's really still not, he's still really not a good investigator yet. But he, you're right, he does know this world. And so Laura should be relying on him for advice and information about how to navigate in this world as she's doing the investigation. Of course, Laura's in a situation where she got kind of painted into a corner where she can't bring him in, but advisory capacity, that was the whole shtick at the beginning. So why not use it in that way without any details? Just, Hey, we've got this case. Yep. Here's the situation. Here's the some details. How would you do? Where would you go? Who would you talk to? That sort of thing. What would you do? Perfect. Perfect advisory capacity situation. That's true. 
And what's interesting about this is that they both end up coming to a wrong conclusion from different angles. Mm-hmm. They, they both, yeah. So she thinks Maury is responsible. He thinks Herod's responsible towards the end of the episode. And of course, both of them are wrong. But they well, both it's because are, they only have half yeah, the information. Yeah, they're both missing the because other they're half. not working together. Yeah, <laughs> which they would have had if they were working together. So you're right. I think this was one of the areas where she maybe should have said to Mister Herod, "We won't bring him in directly, but we will have him on as an advisor," mm-hmm. because that would have been if if he really was Remington Steele, if he really was this great detective, you'd want him to help i would think yeah so yeah yeah i agree and then we switched to the elevator <laughs> maury er, Mar- <laughs> there it is again <laughs> there it is again <laughs> should make a drinking game out of this take a shot every time you say murphy or maury in the wrong spot <laughs> could make the ending of this episode very interesting Laura and Murphy are in the elevator. (laughs) Murphy asks Laura how she's going to tell Steele he's persona non grata on this one. And she's like, I love how she responds. She's like, I'm just going to tell him. And then of course, you left out the, you left out the, the part of Murphy's line that I like the best. You tell (laughs) that guy, he can't be a part of something. And sure as he talks funny, he's going to want to be a part of it. And he's right. He's 1000%. Steel is kind of like a small child in that respect. If you tell him he can't have something, he wants it that much more. So Murphy, mm-hmm. Murphy has his number there. <laughs> um, yep. And she seems to think that she comments about how, oh, well, he cares about the well-being of the agency. He's going to respond in a mature manner. Is she really this naive? No, (laughs) she is just trying to convince herself. You know, if she says it often enough, if she says it forcefully (laughs) enough, if, if she tries to convince her, if if she convinces herself, she really believes that when she says it, she'll really believe it (laughs) and it'll actually be that. No, No. she's not that. (laughs) She's just, she wants to be. Yeah. Fair enough. (laughs) But it's, yeah, she's quite determined to just, and she gets lucky because he doesn't want to be involved because he wants to help Maury, but why isn't that a red flag? Right. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was, uh, that was my other comment, but yeah. So <laughs> she comes in and, and here's, here's another one. Why didn't Bernice say something to Laura that he had a client in the office? I granted it, Laura might not necessarily, but she's like you said, she's given up. <laughs> Cause Usually, if he takes a potential client without informing her, Bernice, she's right on top of that. She'll be like, just so you know, he got there before you. He's in there with someone. Like, she doesn't say a word. <laughs> Mm-mm. And here's another Glenn Gordon Karenism. I had to say that very slowly. So <laughs> it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. But when Laura comes in, still, he's in the process of trying to make an excuse to Bernice about why he won't be there. But unfortunately, she comes in and they talk in unison for a bit which again goes back to some of the other stuff that they've done in the past. Mm-hmm. That's where she, he guides her into her office, which is, I guess, better for intimate chats. <laughs> and yeah. she explains that she needs him to sit this one out. He's very obliging, which you're right. How did she not take that as a red flag? That was a walking red flag. She did at least have a little bit of a response when she said, <laughs> the hair on the back of my neck is Just standing up. straight up, yeah. but it shouldn't have been, uh, 
All of her hair should have been standing straight right? up. She should. Just on the back of her neck. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, if it hadn't been for Singer, I'm guessing he would have stuck to them like glue and made a nuisance of himself. That's what he's done in the past. It's it's a pattern. So I genuinely, yeah, she should have been going, hey, wait a minute. Something's not right here. He was really, really, really obliging. This is wrong. <laughs> but yeah, Bernice says nothing. And you're right. Murphy asks how she took it. She says, wonderfully. <laughs> what does that say? I don't know. But the hair on my the back of my neck just stood up. And then they switch. We switch scenes. Steele and Murphy. Maury. Maury. <laughs> Sean. <laughs> Steele and Maury pull up to a retirement home. I think it's a retirement home. I, I, I was a little yep. confused about this. Happy Days Retirement Village. Okay. Because this is the worst retirement home ever. They hire the worst people. <laughs> and they pull up in Maury's beater of a Dodge Charger. I, I'm going to echo what the others in the episode have said. How do you let an automobile get into that condition? A Dodge Charger, for crying out loud. What is wrong with you? Ugh. You just you just let it get in that condition. <laughs> you don't do anything to fix it. <sighs> and, he, you know, he probably doesn't drive it. You know the old yeah, line about... Selling a car, a little old lady only drove it to church on Sundays. That's probably what he does. He only drives it very little, and so he just doesn't put any money into fixing it. That was literally my first car. My first car I bought, it was in 2009, I think, and I bought a 1998 Dodge Stratus. And it was quite literally owned by the owner of the car, the used car store, his mother-in-law, who was no longer driving, and she only drive it, drove it on Sundays. And it was, it rusted. Then it's true. The, it's all true. Every time a salesman says it, it's true. Well, in this case, like it was a small village and everybody knows everybody. And so like we, this, this guy was a friend of ours and we knew who he, it wasn't like a sleazy, like, come on to Honest Al's sort of thing. But the brake shoe did fall off a day after buying it, um, <laughs> which got, it got fixed for free. It was fine. But some of the other stuff you could tell it hadn't been driven because at one point, this was years after we bought it, a couple of years after we bought it, we had a flat tire and the spare, the donut was rusted into the trunk. So we couldn't get it out. It was stuck <laughs> there. It, that car was on its last legs. So yeah, we, it was like $3,000 that I paid for it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so they get to this retirement village and they're supposed to meet with Herschel Gruber, who is the retired jewel thief who apparently worked for Al Capone, which is kind of cool. And yeah, they're greeted by the worst desk clerk ever. <laughs> like, this is what I say. Is this, how is this a retire? Like this guy is awful. Ethics? Yeah. Question mark. <laughs> Qualifications? <laughs> question mark. Right. He gets them to sign the book. He says they're there to see Herschel. And then he says, that he kicked, he almost says he kicked the bucket. This is not how you talk in a retirement home. <laughs> uh, which is obviously a shock to Maury. Apparently you do, though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and this is obviously a shock to Maury because he claims he got the plans three weeks ago. So, Steele, his radar is up. And he tells Maury he thinks he was set up to get back in the car. You think? You think, Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, we switch again. Laura and Murphy show up in the rabbit at the retirement home. Just this, sorry, Murphy, I said Murphy, right? I, did, I got it right that time. 
Anyway. I think so. <laughs> Justice Steele and Maury are leaving it. She comes. Yeah, this is like one of those old comedies where everybody's running funny. in one door. Somebody's <laughs> running out another door, you know. Yeah, it's uh, it's done Scooby-Doo really effectively. It, it is really kind of effective how they keep sort of just missing each other. So they, they come up. They ask about Herschel. The desk clerk tells her that other people were visiting him as well. He asks if they it's were. It's a Herschel Gruber <laughs> convention. <laughs> it's a Herschel Gruber convention. <laughs> were you in the can with Herschel as well? <laughs> Is the question, because <laughs> of course, Maury says he knew him from prison. <laughs> and here's my question, because Laura asks about the other visitors, and the desk clerk tells him that Maury signed the book. Of course, she looks at the book, and this is where you see his signature spelled differently from the script, whatever. <laughs> but he also tells the two of them that a younger man was with him that looked like he walked right out of a cologne ad with an accent and everything. Murphy's eyebrows shoot up. Nothing said, but I wonder if if he has any suspicions. I got it in my notes. Did it even occur to Laura that it might be Steele? Yeah, she certainly didn't act like it. No, Maybe she in just, the back of her mind. I don't know. I mean, she, I, I think it definitely occurred to Murphy because he has a look on his face, and there's nothing in the script that because I looked at the script. There's nothing really in the script that indicate that says that either one of them should think, "Oh, it's Steele." But Murphy definitely had a look on his face. So I kind of wondered if, yeah, Laura doesn't seem to clock it at all. She just goes to use the phone. But Murphy seems to to be looking a little bit curious about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he's got some pretty good steel radar. He does. <laughs> he's pretty <laughs> like the Palace of Heaven tracking him down. The mantle of Remington Steel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, we switch. They're at Maury's house. And you see this adorable basset hound named Happy on the chair. I just want to take him home and smoosh him. <laughs> Has there ever been a dog more oblivious to reality? No. And the funniest part is when you read through the script, the dog did exactly what he was supposed to do. Nothing. Nothing. Because <laughs> <laughs> in the script, it says that literally he just lays there oblivious to everything going on around him. So, which um, is pretty cute. Steele asks him to retell the the events of the evening. Maury recounts everything, and Steele suggests that they call his, quote, sponsor to buy time. This is an interesting suggestion, considering when Maury went to him and made this, you know, don't don't shout from the rooftops plea, the whole point of that was to avoid being found by his sponsor. Now Steele wants to go... Yeah, at that point... But I think it might have changed a little bit in that Steele now has a plan. Well, Maury's not really on board with it yet. Yet. I mean, he's he's still showing some reluctance here. But Steele, at this point, does have a plan to buy some time. Especially now considering that a dead man mailed him the plans. True. Because that kind of changes the entire situation. So Steele's plan is just to misdirect by taking the focus off of Maury and putting it on himself. Which, and here's my other question then, because I said, is this a good idea? It's definitely not a plan that Laura would come up with. And is he getting them into even more danger? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we're kind of jumping ahead to that moment, but like, it just, that was really. Yeah, it's, I mean, it it certainly does achieve the purpose of getting the attention off of Maury. But yeah, it's, it's like, um, yeah, it's basically putting a target on his back. Yeah. He does say when he's talking to Considine, 
And Considine says, you know, I, I find that a very, what was the, the term he used? He, he said uh, something, basically, that's a kind of a dangerous thing to admit right here in front of my board of directors. Yeah. And Steele <laughs> says, no, I, on the contrary, I, I feel like I'm the safest, most protected person alive because you've got to keep me alive in order yep. to find it. Which, of course, we learned later that he knows exactly where it is, but he's not yeah. going to say that in front of but, his But, I mean, there's some logic to, yeah, there is some logic to Steele's approach in this, but it might be that despite how bad the plan is, it might have been their only plan. Yeah, fair enough. At this point. In the script, the three, quote, board of directors are called Banducci, Bandoli, and Barbuti, which I find funny. <laughs> Barbuti? Barbuti, yeah. The, <laughs> when it's B, it's spelled... B A R B U T I. So bar booty. <laughs> they, they're not they're going hard on the Italian. Go, go into a bar and say, hey, I'm looking for bar booty. <laughs> and Bandu- he, he's over <laughs> there in trouble. Band- yeah, he's over there with Banducci no. and Bandoli. <laughs> no, I was thinking it in, in a different respect, but okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Different kind of bar. <laughs> different kind of bar. Yeah, different kind of booty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, before they even get to Considine's, they hear footsteps coming up to the house. Maury thinks it's Considine's men, so they run out the back door. Murphy runs into the house. He runs into the house with a bat in his hand and Laura with him. This seems unnecessary. How did they, and and also, did they just happen to have a bat in the rabbit? Where'd the bat come from? I guess, yeah. (laughs) She'd just drive around with a baseball bat in the back of her trunk in case they need to run into some guy's house with it. Like, yeah, it's his house. Like, it's not. It struck me as very strange that, that he just runs in. It's it's Maury's house. If if Maury is there and his dog is there, like you're in their house. That's not where you should be. The bat seems like an odd choice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so Laura tells Murphy he can put the bat down, points to Happy, who's still asleep on the chair. And, (laughs) no, it doesn't move. (laughs) They find Maury's tux along with the rental ticket. And this is kind of where she figures out the plan without knowing that the jewels were gone when Maury got there. So she's got part, as you said, she's got part of the information. This is where I think we get into some of the, the stuff in the episode, the Glenn Gordon Karenisms of it. Mm-hmm. She asks Murphy as she's reaching. He tells her he agrees with her. He puts his hands on her shoulders. And there's a very sort of intimate smile that he gives her. And she sort of returns it. He says that it feels good working together the way they used to. And he almost says before Steele showed up and she stops him. And then he says, do you realize it's been almost a whole day without saying his name? He keeps bringing up Steele. It feels like he almost had a moment and he blew it. And I don't know if you saw it the same way, but like when he's got his hands on her shoulders, they're smiling at each other. That seemed sweet. And it's then that he goes and brings up steel and she pulls away. Well, hmm. and I don't know. I'm not saying necessarily that Laura would have given Murphy what he wanted, but she definitely seems to cool off on him the minute he brings up steel. I'm looking at the transcription here that I pulled off and this is a transcription from the episode as it was filmed. Right. 
And it says, Murphy says, yeah, this feels good. And she says, what? And he, he says, you and me working together the way we did before. And he doesn't get Steele's name out at that point. No. But yeah, he was going there. Of course. And, yeah. But that's when Laura put her hand on his mouth. Yeah. I, I, um, hmm. I don't know if Murphy really put his foot in it by mentioning Steele's name or if, if he was doing that in response to her stopping him from yeah, going on. It could be. I almost at this point think that she had an idea of where he was going with his comments. And I, I don't mean about the steel part. I right. mean about the two of them part. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I can't prove it. And I may be totally wrong on this, but I'm thinking at this point that that's what she wanted to stop is that it's not just the way it was between you and I in the past. It's not where it's not going where you want it to go, where you think it's going to yeah. go. Now she may not have been thinking of that in terms of a romantic relationship, although it may have been in the back of her mind, but she was at least not wanting him to go down that road of, you know, we, we can do this without him. Right. I think you're right. What strikes me is, so these are, this is kind of where I was thinking of, of how Murphy is written a bit differently here. And the scene later on when he kisses her, because mm -hmm. In the previous episode, we had that comment that Steele makes that could be just Steele being, you know, shooting his mouth off, but it could also be something that Murphy genuinely said. And it was that comment he made about Murphy referring to Megan as the short one with the big rack. And right. we commented <laughs> and I said, that doesn't feel like something Murphy would say. Murphy doesn't no. come off as crude or as this sort of hyper-masculine grab the girl and kiss her kind of guy. Except that seems to be how Glenn Gordon Karen likes to write him. He's a lot more forceful in these two episodes. Mm -hmm. He's a lot more, he's taking charge of, of what this situation is. He's taking advantage of it in a way, and not of her, but taking advantage of the situation. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like this version of Murphy is very different from the other episodes where Murphy has made jibes about Steel and has made cracks about Steel and clearly doesn't like him but hasn't been quite so rude about Laura. Cause he, he comments later when she pulls away and she goes to the phone, he says something like, did you think about him? And she says, well, we've been busy. And then he says, well, there's hope for the patient's recovery. That is if she wants to recover, which I found very patronizing. And just like that really, that doesn't feel like something that he would say in any of the other episodes. Because he's he's always been critical of Steel, but in this case, he's very critical of Laura, implying that she's sick <laughs> or ill mm -hmm. and not able to make rational decisions or or not in control of her behavior. Almost, it it feels very condescending, and I don't know if you got the same impression from it. But he he makes a couple of these comments. Yeah, I I didn't have it. I didn't think of it quite as in the same way as, as you did, but yeah, they, they did strike me as kind of odd comments. I, I guess the only way you could rationalize this behavior would be if you said, okay, well, he's been fighting this emotional battle, this, this romantic battle with steel and you know, he's getting desperate. And so desperate times call for desperate measures. And 
this is him responding and just kind of lashing out at the situation because he's trying to get Laura's attention and, and shock her into realizing really <laughs> what kind of guy Steele is and really what kind of a wonderful guy he is. And, you know, I mean, you could, you could build a scenario to justify it, but yeah, if you have to go that far, it, it's, it's probably not right. No. And I, I think you're uh, like, it's I think probably it is, out of character. I think it is. It, it felt out of character because again, we've never seen this from Murphy. We've, we've seen him attack Steele for sure, but we've never seen him really attack Laura. He's, he's questioned her. He said, you know, he's getting away from us again, or how far are you going to let this go? But he's always pretty much trusted her judgment, even if he questions it. Whereas here, he's basically implying she has no judgment. She's a patient that needs to recover. Yeah. His previous comments and questions were always more cautionary. Yeah. Yeah. Where this is more, yeah, you're right. It's, it's more of an attack on her and her judgment. And I feel like if, if I'm trying to get somebody's attention and if I'm trying to put myself in as an option, right, against somebody else that they are interested in, insulting them is not the best way to go about it. <laughs> you know? Are you sure? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a whole philosophy around it, I suppose. But <laughs> there is. I mean, it's called negging, um, which is a, a theory. Yeah, it's dumb. It's really dumb. But like, and I don't think Murphy's yeah. doing this intentionally. I think he's, as you said, frustrated. And he's gotten to this point where he's like, oh, this is my one chance because they're working together and steals out of the picture and he's not competing against him. But it just, for someone who claims to be a friend, he he doesn't seem to believe her capable of making her own decisions. And if I were Laura, I would, I would be very offended by those comments. I would be, you know, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. And yeah, I just don't think that was, he had a moment and he blew it. He stuck his foot right down his throat. <laughs> so Yeah. You know, and he could have made the same point about steel and not mentioning his name and yeah. working together as a team, like in the old days without taking that particular tack on, on the conversation. Yeah, for sure. More of a, See, look, we really, I mean, yes, he's here in our lives and we have to deal with him, but we don't need him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Remember how it used to be and see, we're showing now that we can still do it without his direct involvement. So let's get back to him being the pretty boy that goes out and shakes (laughs) hands and kisses babies and, and all that stuff. And then we do the detective work and then we have our, also our own relationship. He doesn't need to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah, and that would have been a much, much smarter way to go about it because Laura was feeling that nostalgia. She did seem mm-hmm. at least receptive to their friendship and their partnership. She smiled at him. She wasn't. She was relaxed. Yeah, she, she was, was having fun. She was happy. She was enjoying herself. Yeah. All of yes. that was there. And then he kind of just stomped on it, which was like, dude, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but uh yeah, and then it gets obviously we'll get there, but then we get the the scene change with with uh, Steele and Maury. They get to Lewis's house only to hear gunshots. A man with a gun runs out, shoots at them before jumping in the car and speeding off. When they go inside, they see Lewis dead. And here's something I wanted to point out from the script. This is not in my notes. I was just I was looking over the script and I found it very interesting what it says to describe the bodies. Because this is obviously what we don't see in the episode. So it says they both stopped dead in their tracks for there in front of them 
Oh, sorry. Um, I skipped ahead. That's not what I'm looking at. Uh, the clamor up the suitcase, open the apartment door. A suitcase stands just beside it, and a man is wedged half in, half out the window, as though attempting to flee his pursuer, blood beginning to ooze from a very large, ugly hole in his back. Mm. Yeah, we didn't see that. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we did not, not see that. No. <laughs> uh, that would have been, the blood is too real on Remington well, Steele. And, and that's, they also have a very graphic description of of um, frank's death too which we'll get to but i just found it very interesting that that's in the script direction but clearly not is isn't what not it's not in the episode yeah we see him hanging out the window but we don't see all yeah. the other gory stuff yeah yeah so the car turns around steel decides to chase it in maury's dodge charger <laughs> maury seems to think it's about he hasn't used fourth gear since 1969 <laughs> Is still, this is my question. Is he really naive enough to think that Maury's old charger could catch that other car? Well, I mean, you use what you have. Because <laughs> again, the script describes it for there in front of them is the Dodge Charger, a less inspiring piece of American steel would be hard to find. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's a great description of that car. It is a great I mean, description. It's very accurate. <laughs> uh, so, Yeah. <laughs> Well, and then jumping ahead just a little bit, you know, Laura and Murphy show up in her rabbit <laughs> and she actually pulls a pretty impressive turnaround for somebody who's such a poor driver. Yeah. <laughs> uh, see, I don't think she is a poor driver. I think she's an aggressive driver, which is what was being commented on. Right. And she does really well with it okay. here because that's what they need. They need someone who's able to turn on a dime and just let her rip. You're gaining <laughs> on him. You're gaining on him. You're, you passed him. You passed him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's where they see the charger and they turn to chase Maury. He must have noticed the, I, I must've missed this, but I think it's cause like he noticed the license plate, right? Cause he says that's Maury Singer in that charger. But if he's never physically seen Maury, mm. then it, it has to be that he noticed the plate because, or maybe he just saw Maury in the car. Yeah. But then he would have seen steel too. Would he not? Oh, you're right. <laughs> So yeah, he had to have recognized the car. Maybe it was less, maybe he'd gotten a glimpse of it. He had gotten a photograph of it somewhere along the way. I, I don't know. You're right. That, that, that is kind of unexplained. Yeah. Cause he does. He actually verbally says, Laura, that's Maury Singer in that car, right? In that charger or whatever. And then they turn around to chase him. So yeah, <laughs> it could be another Glenn Gordon Karenism. <laughs> so the rabbit plot hole, um, <laughs> the rabbit going through the plot hole. <laughs> okay. um, and as you said they soon catch up and then they drive right past them which is probably the funniest kind of chase is it's this? a great car chase <laughs> thumbs up i love it <laughs> that that was a brilliant that was a brilliant bit there and they I, noticed the just maury coasting to the stop and <laughs> just like giving up <laughs> so and and they have the right idea afterwards, which is to turn around and sort of follow them stealth in a stealthy way, as opposed to mm -hmm. chasing them again. And that's what they do. They follow them to Considine's compound. And this is when Murphy and Laura pull up in the rabbit. They're waiting outside. And this is the scene you were talking about where, right he, now here's a, he introduces himself as John Roby, which is Cary mm -hmm. Grant's character in to catch a thief. And interestingly enough, the movie is playing on the TV when they find Frank later on. So that's kind of snuck in there as a little <laughs> bit of Easter egg, which is kind of cute. But um, I don't know. Have you seen that? Have you seen To Catch a Thief? Yes. It's a good one. I think it's a, yeah. a good one to have, good have him. And he, again, he's taking a bit of a chance here because 
Remington mm-hmm. Steele's face, he's kind of Schrodinger's investigator at this point because when the plot needs him to be super visible, everybody knows what he looks like. But <laughs> when the plot needs him to be somebody else, they just take him at face value, which I find kind of interesting. Because he, I mean, he introduces himself as John Roby. Considine doesn't question it, mm-hmm. despite him being the quote unquote famous Remington Steele. And this is where he tells Considine that he was the one who beat him to the safe. Which, as you said, Constantine says it's a very dangerous confession. He says, on the contrary, I feel quite safe. And this, this only works because Banducci, Barbuti, and Bandoli are in the background. Because if they hadn't been, Constantine, he has the rock. He has the, the diamond. So he, you know, he knows that Steel is lying. Right. I find very. So, yeah, if, if they weren't there, he could have just gotten rid of, gotten rid of Steel, gotten rid of Maury. Well, and yeah. Been done with it. <laughs> Because I mean, yeah. we know he's haunted. He's taken. He's already taken out Lewis, right? So he, we know he's mm-hmm. going to go after yep. Frank, and and he doesn't deny it. Yeah, which is very chilling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Steele says you the way you did with Lewis, and he says exactly the way I did with Lewis. Oof! Yeah. <laughs> it's almost a brag. Yeah it it feels very similar to the situation in Steel Flying High when he negotiated with Swan. Mm-hmm. Because you've you've got a character very similar to Swan in that he's sleazy, he's he's clearly a killer, and he's teetering on thin ice with how he's dealing with the situation. He's using his survival skills, his instincts, but he gets lucky. Yeah, I hadn't made that connection, but you're right. <laughs> he gets real lucky, right? Yes, and not in the bar booty sense. In bar booty, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Swipe right on Tinder for bar booty. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, no. <laughs> uh, they leave and, and Steele tells Maury he was buying them more time to find the real thieves. And of course, as mm-hmm. they drive out, Laura and Murphy drive in. So, mm-hmm. and uh, they come right out. Laura is very direct. She just comes right out and says, we're private investigators. They believe that Maury Singer has the jewel, but can't sell it on his own. And they think Considine is merely supposed to be selling it for him. So he, <laughs> he claims to be in the import export business and Murphy comes right out and points out his mob connections, which again, this seems very bold. Not that Murphy is, is a coward or anything, but this doesn't, again, this doesn't really feel like a Murphy move. It feels like a steel move. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, maybe he's, maybe Murphy's picking up some steelisms. Yeah, it could be. Next thing you know, he'll be telling him that story about the bullet making its way out. <laughs> from yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but you're right. I mean, Laura's move is, is really bold here, but it's, but she's, it's, she's in a really weak position yeah. to be making such a bold yeah. move. Which is what my question was. Cause I said like, is this a good plan? It seems far more dangerous than Steel going to Considine and claiming to have the jewel. Pointing out they know he's a mobster, as well as demanding that he give back a jewel worth two million for half a million. I would think that the fact that it's stolen wouldn't matter too much on the black market to the right buyer. I don't know. You know, it's a common trope of mystery shows where something that is stolen can only fetch a fraction of the value of it on the black market because right. it is stolen. And in this particular case, there might be some validity to it because as they kind of put it elsewhere, a stone of that size, everybody's going to know about it. 
and true they're going to know it was stolen and the only person who could even consider buying it would be somebody who would buy it and hide it away they couldn't they couldn't use it as part of a a necklace or some other piece of jewelry they would have to literally buy it and hide it away and it's one of those secret secret obsessions secret possessions that nobody else knows about and, and that's how they get their jollies is knowing that they've got it and nobody else knows it so yeah i i can see her point about the half a million but yeah it's 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 a weak position she's trying to negotiate from yeah and i think it is at face value it's risky it's doubly risky knowing yeah. what we know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> based on the, the episode later is that Considine actually has the stone. Yeah. yeah, both of them are very lucky that his board of directors are there because mm -hmm. that move would not have worked if he hadn't had an audience. It would have backfired big time. Yeah, and, and it's only because they're there that he's able to make it work in his favor or seems to me yeah. able to make it work in yeah. his favor by saying, okay, well I'll put you in touch with the guy <laughs> who's got it and we'll sell it, yeah. sell it back to you. Then I'm out of it. Yeah. Cause that still diverts tension to steal John Roby. Yeah. It leaves him holding the diamond, which he can then deal with later. And it, it's interesting that you say that because when we were in Ottawa this past summer, my husband and my daughter and I, we toured the um, Canadian mint, the Royal Canadian mint, and we went down into the seeing how they make all the coins and the they had some pretty impressive pieces there. And one that they had was this gigantic gold, solid gold coin. And I guess they had made six of them. One was stolen. I can't remember where they said the others were, but they had one that was stolen. It's never been found. And then one was bought by some ultra millionaire rich person and he he asked the tour like what do you think this person did with it if you've got this multi-million dollar coin that's the size of a it's it, it was a a big coin it was like a nightstand like the you know big coin and my husband put up his hand and he said coffee table and the guy just paused and he said you're only two other people have gotten that answer right and apparently that's what the guy did with it. He had this, I think the guy was, who bought it, the guy it, who bought the, it, the guy who bought it legitimately was using it as a coffee table <laughs> coin worth $10 million or something like that. And it's a coffee table. <laughs> and so, and I just felt, found it funny because my husband was, he was like coffee table. That's what I would do with it. <laughs> Turns out to be right, but nobody's found the one that got stolen. It's still, there's a big question mark. So I, maybe you're right. If it gets bought, they can't show it off. They can't make it into a coffee table because then, of course, people know they have it. <laughs> now, in the case of a gold coin, you could always melt it down and sell it off true. for the gold. Yeah, that's in true, too. In the case of a diamond, the value of it is in its size and clarity. Yeah. And if you tried to cut it down to smaller stones, beyond the fact that the stone cutter might recognize it, yeah. you're, you're kind of destroying some of the value of it because it's, it's not one of those linear things that as something gets twice as big, it's worth twice as much. True. I, I think the way the jewel, the precious jewel market works is that if it gets twice as big, it's worth like four times as much. Yeah. <laughs> True. You know, so yeah, you can't, you, you couldn't do a whole lot with the diamond, the, that gold coin. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I could find a way to dispose of it. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. <laughs> 
Not, I'm not saying I've got it, people. Please don't call us. <laughs> I think we've don't solved call the, the mystery. I'm not. <laughs> uh, I've never been to Ottawa. <laughs> uh, we've solved the mystery. The, the coin from the Royal <laughs> Committee. Ceases? Ceases? We know who has it. Um, anyway. <laughs> so Steele, he questions Maury on the safe to see if someone else got there first, asking if there were torch marks. And so his new theory is that if there weren't, it was an inside job. He thinks Herod has it. We switch to... Can I... Can I sorry. <laughs> can I comment about that conversation there? Yeah. When Steele asks about the the break-in and the safe, Maury's response, I, I didn't ever catch it until, like you said earlier, I was sitting here and listening and watching it for this. Right. He says, Frank was operating the torch. If something wasn't kosher, for sure he would have seen it. Yeah. He doesn't say for sure he would have said something. True. That's true. I think that is an interesting difference. Yep. You know, he may have inferred that Frank would have said something. And he may even be implying that he believes that Frank would have said something, but he's, but, you know, seeing and saying aren't the same things. And, and he's very deliberate in saying he would have seen it, not true. that he, he would have said it. Yeah. And, you know, the one that does not automatically follow the other. So Yeah, that's true. It's, it's an interesting distinction. It is an interesting, and I, I didn't catch it, but now that you say it, you're right. It He says, he doesn't say he would have said something, which is important. Then we switch to the big scene <laughs> before <sighs> Murphy. She wants to involve Steele now, and I'm personally on board with this decision. I think that she's right when she says, I think we can let him know this is the time to bring him in. And Murphy, yeah. not, and of course, Murphy's against it. Yeah. <laughs> and she, it's important. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's important to note too, that she says she doesn't feel right. Excluding him. She wouldn't have said that a few episodes ago, but now it doesn't feel right to keep him out. Whereas before it was like priority. Number one was keeping him as far from the case as humanly possible. So I think that that maybe pings in Murphy's brain. And he continues this, this speaking about her as if she's got some sort of illness, right? He says, you've gone a whole day without him. It's like smoking. He, compare, he compares steel to smoking, which is, <laughs> okay, sure. But yeah, it's like quitting smoking. You've gone a whole day without him as if she's somehow an addict or something. And then he demands that she... Well, I guess... From his standpoint, I guess you could argue that there is a little bit of addictive behavior that she's exhibiting in this because, and like I said, it's from Murphy's perspective, right? because she does keep going back to him, even though time and time again, he's created problems for her, for the agency, for their clients, for their investigations. And so I, I can kind of see his perspective on it don't necessarily agree with how he handled it, but yeah, I, I, don't, can, I can kind of see his perspective. I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I will say that how he handles it versus his perspective, I think are two different things. Right. And he, right. I don't, he, he doesn't handle it well and his dinner now with me. And then I love it when I'm forceful. Well, and, and <laughs> yeah, and then she says, it's a new side, it's of, a you. New side of you. Yeah. And do you like it? Well, it's, it, you know, and it's one of those, I'm going to hedge the question. Yeah. I'm going to hedge yeah. the answer. Uh, it's different. She's very. That, that's like saying. 
It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's not reading. Which is a euphemism for it sucks. Yeah, but. <laughs> it's a euphemism for when somebody gets a bad or, or sort of comparative, like when somebody gets a bad haircut and they come in and they're like, what well, do you like it? Well, it's interesting. It's different. It's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks. It, it sucks. And she doesn't like it, but he doesn't. He And this is another thing where I'm not sure that this is in character for Murphy because he's an investigator. He knows how to read social cues. Should. And I don't know if he's deliberately ignoring the fact that she's not giving him these non-answers. And maybe some of that's on Laura, where she should just be saying, look, no, I don't like it. I want to just be friends. If whatever you're heading towards is what you're heading towards, let's put the brakes now. But she, she doesn't. She sticks with trying to be polite and skirting around it. Diplomatic. It doesn't work. And that's when he grabs her and he kisses her. He says, what the hell? And goes for it. She's taken entirely by surprise. So, of course, when Steele walks into the office with the intention of bringing <laughs> her up to speed on the situation, he sees that, quickly excuses Awkward. himself. And Laura tries to explain it. But when he closes the door, she's frustrated. She's flustered. She says, he thinks we were and doesn't finish the sentence. But Murphy grins and says, we were. We were. I'm like, were you though, Murphy? Because... I think that's no, just... No, you were Murphy. You were. She wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is where I ask myself again, is she this naive? How does she not know at this point? She has to know. She has to know. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like You would think. She's wanting to ignore it, maybe. I think so. Because she claims in the car... If I deny it enough, then it goes away. Which doesn't work. It's kind of the reverse of it's kind of the reverse <laughs> of what she was doing earlier, was trying to convince yeah. herself that Steele would stay out of it. And if she says it enough, it'll be true. And in this case, it's if I ignore it enough, yeah. it won't be true. And that's unfortunate because I think it it just and again, not that she's intending to lead Murphy on, mm-hmm. but she doesn't explicitly say she's not handling it well. I'm she doesn't explicitly call out, hey, what is going on here? Are you making a move? If you are not interested, she, yeah, she tries to be diplomatic about it. It doesn't work. Murphy's, but again, Murphy's not reading those social cues either. So both of them are kind of in this space where they're not really reading what the other person's doing and it it doesn't, you know, it's not going well. Yeah. So can I jump back just a little bit on a totally (laughs) unrelated tangent (laughs) that has absolutely nothing to do with anything that has absolutely nothing to do with this episode? (laughs) Do you have, do you have the coffee Um, table? Is this what we're talking about? No, 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 (laughs) no. When Steele is talking to more and he wants to bring Laura into it. Right. Because remember that it was, it was a two-sided. It is. It's a coin. It's a two-sided coin. (laughs) Laura wanted to bring Steele into it and Steele wants to bring Laura into it. And he's trying to convince Maury of it. And he's, you know, he says, she's terribly reliable, extremely competent, closed mouth to a fault. <laughs> Every time I see that, the, the look on his face, um, just the whole appearance of him there reminds me of, and you may not even be familiar with Johnny Gage, the name. Randolph Mantooth, okay. emergency. The name is familiar, but I've never, yeah, I don't. If you go back and watch some old emergency episodes, okay. th- just this one scene, for, for whatever reason, the way it's lit, the, the, the way he moves, holds his head, uh, his facial expressions, the, the dark features, 
It just reminds me so much of Randolph Mantooth <laughs> as Johnny Gage in Emergency. I'm total, total tangent. Okay. No. I'm done. <laughs> so, hey, now, I'm, now I have to go and watch it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> so, yeah, he, and coming back in, this is interesting because the script was interesting on this one too. Because you could read this two ways if, if the script didn't explicitly say it. He comes in, he's caught off guard. And he tells Maury he wants him to stay at his place. He's, he's focusing on the case. He's kind of not even, he says he's going to talk to Frank. And then when Maury says happy, meaning his dog, he takes mm-hmm. that to mean that Maury has noticed his distress. And then he confides to Maury that Laura and Murphy have developed more than a professional attachment to each other, concedes it's partly his fault for not being able to make commitments, etc. And the script, like you could read this, having not read the script, you could read this as Steele being his usual sort of melodramatic self and and he sort of is at, he is at the end right he's playing an angle at the end but here mm-hmm. the script explicitly says as remington attempts to absorb the sight he's just seen and its implications and then when he says happy the apparent question stops remington in, in his tracks and forces him to evaluate his feelings so according to the script this part is him being real and Again, this follows this pattern of him being real, but only when he's around secondary characters that aren't there to have to absorb the consequences. Yeah, that he doesn't have to face later on yeah. knowing what they, yeah. So, and he does. He did it with Sheldon, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And here, yeah, he did. And here he says, it's partly my fault, I'll grant. You see, I have this difficulty making commitments at least the kind of a woman like Miss Holt demands. Consequently, I can't really blame her. And then of course, Mr. Michaels, however, is an unconscionable swine, <laughs> which is cute. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely, I happy is my dog. <laughs> but I like the fact here that he acknowledges it's partly his fault. He thinks this is real. He thinks what he's seen is real. Later on, he realizes it isn't, but he thinks what he's seen here is real. He acknowledges it could be his fault. He doesn't behave like a jealous idiot. He seems to use it as an opportunity to reflect on things. He does, of course, call Murphy an unconscionable swine, which I enjoy, but he doesn't blame Laura for it. He doesn't Mm-mm. use any of that. He, he's being general, genuinely introspective, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a genuine moment, all brought about by the fact that he misunderstood yeah. the question, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Happy's my dog. <laughs> Which is which is cute. I liked I liked that. And he, I thought maybe you could bring him to your apartment. And then of course he goes on to say he doesn't like sleeping alone. Stupid, isn't it? A dog behaving so sensitive, but that's the way happy is. <laughs> Me, I don't care one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> this dog, this dog is a whole character in and of himself, and I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, let's face it, Maury is projecting. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's not that the dog yeah. is sensitive. It's not that the dog can't bear sleeping alone in the house with nobody yeah. there it's him he can't do it but he's going to use the dog as the excuse absolutely but yeah I mean, it's a great scene yeah yes it's fantastic and so then we um we switch to laura and murphy in the car outside maury's place oh sorry no the scene where frank is shot dead the script directions here are interesting too because it it says a television set with Cary Grant and Grace Kelly romping through the Riviera in To Catch a Thief. We pan off the television to discover two cans of beer on the coffee table, hear a knock at the door, 
the ashtray is completely burnt out without ever having been lifted off the ashtray. And we move to the ashtray and then it says, we climb up the man's leg to his stomach and we can see that he is sitting in an easy chair, fully dressed and hear the sound of the door being breached. Cary Grant and Grace Kelly on the television, we see the small river of blood that seems to be flowing from the man's chest down to his stomach. (laughs) Wow. The bodies are piling up. Glenn Gordon Karen really wanted the blood in this. Yeah. (laughs) Small river of blood. Whereas what we really see is just a tiny little hole in his chest. The the classic TV bullet wound where it's just. Yeah. It's just like one little. Like a a dab (laughs) of jelly. (laughs) Oops. I dropped it on my shirt. But it's. Oh, you're dead now. (laughs) But it's really interesting that they, uh, that they, he even put that in the script. It obviously was never going to make it to screen. That's not the kind of show this is, but Mm -mm. yeah. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) He was trying. He was. He was trying. He definitely was. And so then we have Laura and Murphy in the car outside Maury's place. Murphy comes back to the car and tells Laura he tore the place apart, couldn't find the diamond. She gives him some food, and she's, again, deliberately ignoring the elephant in the room. She's not talking about it. Oh, I thought you were talking about the the elephant in the room. That was her poor hat choice. (laughs) I liked that. Uh, I'm sorry. That hat (laughs) does not do anything for her. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry you liked it, but. Um, <laughs> no, not doing it for me. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> no, it was, it was the kiss. Obviously you'd think that she would take this opportunity to set the record straight. I would have, especially when Murphy says, this isn't the dinner I had in mind. She says, shut up and eat. Mm-hmm. I would have, this is the moment, right? This is the moment where I would have said, just for the record, what happened between the two of us in the office can't happen again. I'm not interested. I think of you as a friend. That's what should have been said here. But she doesn't. So this is what I wonder. Like, has she known about his feelings this whole time? And has she been just content with ignoring it? You know, I think in the context of this episode, I think you may be right. Up to this point, you could make the excuse that she didn't know. Right. I can't. In the context of this script, I can't imagine that she didn't know. Yeah. And when she says, well, you're going to delve, aren't you? Yeah. And right there, that's an indication that she kind of has a clue where this is going. Oh, yeah. She knows. I like the way Murphy does say this bit here. Right. Because I, I think it is very much a description of Murphy. I don't know that. Him saying it is probably the best way to go about it, but it, I think it is a very apt description of him. You know, he says, I'm no competition for him in looks mm. or in that smarmy charm he has, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a straight ahead kind of guy. No curves, no wiggles. What you see is what you get basically. Yeah. So. But the thing is, he hasn't really been that straight ahead up until this point. Like this episode, he's, he lays it on the line, but the previous episodes he's been hinting, but not really. Well, he's, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. He's not been straight ahead in that he hasn't come out and said it, but he hasn't been manipulative. No, he hasn't. In the way that yeah. Steele has been. That's true. And here's the thing. Like, I, I mean, Pierce Brosnan is a very attractive man. James Reed is a very attractive man. So I don't know that he's, I guess that's his perception of himself that he can't compete with looks in, in the looks department, but 
I mean, it clearly, as an actor, he was hired to be an attractive man. Most people that are hired for TV shows at this point are are pretty to look at. That's what TV mm-hmm. was back then. So I, I don't necessarily think he's right in saying that he doesn't. I think it's, I think it's, he's comparing the style yeah, of his look. For sure. To Steele's style of look. Because yes, as you say, they're both good looking guys. But their type, their yeah. style is different. Murphy is more the rugged, rugged handsomeness. Yeah. The common looks handsome. Steel is the GQ. Yeah. Handsome. That's fair. The, the made up, the mannequin style <laughs> handsome. The accent. The accent yeah. plays a factor. <laughs> yes. But so there, there are different types of, of handsome, but I think Murphy is. I think Murphy's comment is in, I think his comment is coming from the perspective that this type of handsome that I am doesn't compete with that in the minds of most women and certainly not in your mind, Laura. Which is interesting because we find out later on she lived with Wilson, who by all accounts is the most boring and and like stayed, we see Wilson. Wilson's not much to look at. Well, I mean, he's not bad. He's 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 not, not ugly. No, he's not. He's not hunchback of Notre Dame or anything, but he's not, he's an ordinary looking guy. He's, he's, yeah, he's a nice looking guy, but he's ordinary looking. He, he looks exactly like what everything Steele isn't reliable, predictable, and all of the things that Murphy thinks she doesn't want that he thinks he, that he's, you know, saying he is are things that Laura has been interested in, in the past. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So that's true. You know, I don't know if it's necessary. I think, again, his perception of himself versus what Steele is coming in with the charm and the flash and all of the stuff. But yeah, I, I don't think he's as straight ahead as he thinks he is in some ways. But at this other, in other ways, as you said, he is, he's your typical ordinary guy. He doesn't have any agenda. He's not being manipulative unless until this episode kind of where he yeah, well, yeah. goes a bit off the rails. But and then this is where Laura's response just baffles me because she says she had no idea. Come on, really? <laughs> yeah, that's that was your earlier question. Yeah. And no, I, I, I don't buy it at this point. I don't buy it either. And again, she keeps... Is, is this just her again trying to sidestep the issue? I think so. And I wonder if it's because... And I think every single woman on the face of the planet has had this situation happen where they've had a friendship that they thought was a friendship that was two-sided and it turned out one person had feelings for the other and probably men have been in the situation too i don't know i'm not a dude but <laughs> um i've never been there and they have to try to salvage the friendship or at least they want to usually mm-hmm. and i've you know had these situations happen to me and it's it's it once that cat is out of the bag then potentially back in. yeah and potentially the friendship is over it really depends right it's not it's not like you have to end the friendship but if that person is really bothered by seeing you as somebody else or bothered by you having relationships outside of them that friendship might not last so i wonder if she's afraid of losing murphy well you know and i i was going to say as you were saying that it, it made me connect that with what I said earlier. And that is if Murphy's self image is what I described earlier, 
then that's exactly what's going to happen. Right. Is he's not going to be able to stay around and make it work no. as friends because he's just had this huge boulder fall on him. And you know, there's no recovering from it. There, yeah. As you said, the cat's out of the bag. There's no putting it back in. The cat's yeah, on the roof. We can't if, get him if down. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, I, I think it, yeah, some of these threads are starting to connect here. Yeah. And, and she rejects him. She, she does her best to reject him kindly. But I, I think kindly is the wrong way to, to handle this at this point because she's let it go so far that Murphy does not want to listen. He basically says he's going to keep trying. He's just going to try harder. And oof, like, I think at that point, Laura. Re- I'm not sure that there's a good way to handle it, though. I, I, I mean, I, I agree that trying to let him down easy, especially in light of the fact that he says, well, I'm not going to give up. Yeah. Isn't going to work. But is there any other way that's going to be better? Well, she does say to him. And I'll give her credit. She does say this isn't going where you want it to go, which is very, that's pretty, that's probably the first thing she said that has been direct the whole time. Right. But I think she might've added to maybe added something along the lines, because I think, I think she would have rejected Murphy, even if steel wasn't in the picture. You think so? I think so. I don't think Murphy was ever on her radar. And it okay, just, I guess it's just the romantic in me. I, I would like to think that if Steele had never come into the picture, Laura and Murphy would have gotten together. It's an interesting fan fiction question. <laughs> would they have? Would they have ended up together? <laughs> I, I, I want to see Lindley and Havers get together. Okay, get Helen out of there. <laughs> I'm not that far into the series yet. No, I, that's me. I am. I am the romantic. I. I'm sorry. I, it's embarrassing to say. It's horrible. No, it's a horrible thing for somebody that. like me to say. But There's no, I do. I, I would like to have thought that that Murphy and Laura would have gotten together if Steele hadn't come in. And which is why I think that had Murphy said something earlier on, or if Steele hadn't shown up, it would have had a different outcome. And see, my, my way of thinking of it is, is, nothing, is that it's nothing to do with Murphy per se, but that she, and this is maybe not fair to Murphy, but she sees Murphy, at least what we see of them, she sees Murphy as someone that she relies on, but doesn't necessarily want anything more with him. Like she, their friendship appears to be based on mutual respect and all of these great things, but she never seems to look at him in a way that he, in the way that he's looking at her. And again, it's not really a question we can answer because we don't really see the two of them interact much without steel outside of the probably the first three quarters of the premiere episode but i don't know it just never seemed like she so i i wonder if it would have helped for her to tell him like this isn't anything to do with 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 steel this is just how i feel because his vowing to try harder feels maybe she could have said something else there maybe she could have said please don't because this isn't going to change. I see what you're saying, but I reject your reality and substitute <laughs> my own. <laughs> I don't know. I just think it puts the burden of rejection, further rejection on her afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it would put more pressure on things if she knows that he's constantly trying to win her over, even though 
again, he would have been better off if he hadn't said that part. Maybe he could continue trying to win her, but having said that was probably the mistake. Yeah. And having said, I'm going to keep trying because that works in romantic comedies, but in real life, it comes off creepy. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? But I thought life was supposed to be like the movies. Yeah. This is, this is the dog and dog. (laughs) Are you saying that rom-coms have ruined reality? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> this is the this is the Dobler Dahmer effect, right? Have you have you seen How I Met Your Mother? Mm-mm. So Barney, the character of Barney Stinson in in the show describes romantic gestures as having either a Dobler or a Dahmer effect. And this is in an episode where this woman is chasing after Ted, and she's doing it in a way that's really creepy, like she pulls the fire alarm at his work just so she can see him and stuff like that. And Ted is into it because she's hot and Ted is an idiot. But Barney basically keeps trying to point out that she's a psycho and Ted is not listening because he's into her because she's hot. So Barney describes these gestures as either a Dahmer or a Dobler. So Dobler being a reference to Lloyd Dobler from Say Anything, the movie where he holds the boombox up outside her window as this big romantic gesture. It's an 80s rom-com. And she sees him holding the boombox, playing, playing the song, and, and of course runs to him and everything's fine, right? Because I, she's I in love I'm, with him. I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer being a serial killer, <laughs> being the opposite effect. So the theory that Barney has... When he invites is, you to dinner, <laughs> or when he invites yeah, he you for dinner, he means he... <laughs> <laughs> so in the episode, the theory that Barney has is that romantic gestures have either a Dobler or a Dahmer effect, depending on how the person feels about the other person, right? So if somebody says, oh, you know, you've rejected me, but I'm just going to try harder. That's essentially what Steele has been doing this whole time. Laura has turned him down. She said no. She said no in the very second episode, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And he continues to pursue and hasn't given up, but there's, that's the Dobler because she's into him. So it's fine. Mm-hmm. But with Murphy, <laughs> not that Murphy is a serial killer, but Murphy is the Dahmer part of this equation. She's not interested in Murphy. So when he says, I'm going to keep trying, that just makes things more. It doesn't awkward. go well. Yeah. No. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> Dobler Dahmer. Carry on. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> they see Maury's car and Steele goes inside Maury's house. They don't know it's him at the time. Laura says she'll cover the front. Murphy will take the back. Steele is trying to get Happy to leave the house. But of course, Happy is refusing to walk. And he hears Murphy coming, leaves Happy at the door so that Murphy trips over him. Using the dog as a tripwire. Yes. Brilliant move. Actually, it's a very smart move. Yeah. Happy seems completely unperturbed by it. He grabs him, runs out the door, gets away. Then he goes to Herod's and freaks Herod out, which is pretty amusing. Poor Herod, because <laughs> he yeah, you know, and to, my my reading of it is that Steele's mind is already made up. Yeah, it doesn't matter what Herod would have said. It doesn't nope. matter what kind of evidence Herod could have provided. Oh. Steele's basically <laughs> made up his mind. Herod's guilty, and yeah. if you don't say what I want you to say, that's proof that you're guilty. And if you do say <laughs> what I want you to say, that's even more proof that you're guilty. Yep, yep, pretty much pure cognitive dissonance. So he. <laughs> He storms out. Herod goes and then calls Laura. And then Laura and Murphy is furious with him. And they go to his apartment. They knock on the door. Nobody answers. Murphy still wants to kick it in. I, and <laughs> I, I love this because 
yes, Murphy still wants to kick in the door. And Laura, yeah. the, she she stops him again, <laughs> as she did last time. Yeah. Only this time, her reasoning is different. Because this yep. time, it's not about, well, we'll have to pay for the door. It's about, I've got a better target in mind. <laughs> There's more rewarding things to kick. I agree. It's great. <laughs> they open the door, and poor Murphy is promptly smashed over the head with a glass vase <laughs> by Maury. And then he comments on how he, I know we're into women's living everything, but a lady hit that? <laughs> Which is, <laughs> yeah, and then he threatens him with happy. <laughs> yeah, two one steps. more step, with two steps. Two steps. That dog, <laughs> that is a dog has been nothing but a disappointment from to to me from the day I first found him. <laughs> and Murphy is still laying on the floor, completely unconscious. Is anybody going to take that poor guy to the hospital? No, <laughs> they just ignore it's him. It's candy there. glass. It doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> and she introduces herself to Maury and. and Murphy finally starts to wake up, thankfully. I mean, this is if we're if we're doing concussion watch for steel, this is Murphy's first uh first knockout. <laughs> and then <laughs> I love this bit. Maury goes on to tell Laura that she hurts Steele and that he cares for her and she shouldn't fling her affairs in his face with every Tom, Dick, and Murphy that comes her with. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. I love that one. <laughs> It's you know, good. say what say what you want about Glenn Gordon Karen and how he abuses yeah. the characters. <laughs> uh, the guy does have a way with a phrase. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like there's some really good one-liners in this whole episode. Uh, yes. and she's she's rightfully angry about Maury sticking his nose where it doesn't belong. But you'd think if she stopped to think about it, she'd realize that if Maury knows this much, Steele obviously said it to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would, but it's, you know. she's she's so preoccupied and so focused on other things that it just goes yeah. right over her head. Which, of course, then he turns to Murphy and says, be a mensch. Don't beat your boss's time. Get your own girl. <laughs> beat your boss's I, time. I, I lo- Ouch. I love Maury. <laughs> I love Maury. He's probably, he's great. I wish they'd brought him back. (laughs) Yes. He would have been, he would have been great to have repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And then Bernice calls. She tells him she just got a call from Constein who has a stone. He's willing to bargain. Lori grabs Murphy, poor Murphy, who's still in pain and like probably has glass in his skull. (laughs) And she's like, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So they, (laughs) they go to Constein's. He's taken her up on her offer, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And then. Supposedly. Yeah, he's agreed to put her in touch with the man who has the stone. He wants her to lose. Then he wants her to lose his address. And of course, he introduces him to John Roby just as Steele walks through the door. <laughs> he does not have script, much of a poker face, does he? No, he. The look on his face and the and script doesn't here is pretty funny when it describes. If I can find it, when she sees him, let's see here. Nothing like a prompt. The door opens, revealing by inches one Remington Steele. And then Laura nearly takes a bath in her coffee. <laughs> well, Murphy's <laughs> head begins to throb even more, <laughs> which is a cute description of it. <laughs> As because she does, although I think she had tea. It didn't look like coffee to me in the actual episode. But either way, it mm. spills all over the floor. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, of course, we switch. She's furious. Murphy says, "Do you have any idea what Laura and I have been doing?" And of course, Steele responds with, "Yeah, I caught a glimpse of it last night." <laughs> <laughs> which was good. And then Murphy says they were looking for your client to steal, but it's interesting that he's referring to Moria as Steele's client because he obviously doesn't think of Steele in any way as being a professional detective. And then Steele asks who hired them. Laura says, Mr. Herod. He still thinks Herod's responsible. Laura sarcastically says a brilliant piece of deductive reasoning. 
is <laughs> his comment. We all make mistakes, some more disastrous than others. Um, and then, <laughs> and then she was, says, can we stick to business? Well, apparently, apparently you can't. You can't. <laughs> and then, of course, she plays referee, pointing out the hole in his theory that Herod's not filing an insurance claim. And then she tells Steele about the stone and Maury claims that he didn't know. And he rightfully points it. <laughs> I may be a thief, but I'm not a liar. And then, of course, he, point, he points out that a rock that much would take years to unload, and he hasn't got years. So they're back to square one. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of funny that Steele says, well, maybe it's someone we don't work for. <laughs> so, yeah, they realize that Considine is the one thing that they all have in common. They come to the conclusion that he insisted on his men so he could get the stone first. And then there's a reference. Thomas Crown Affair. <laughs> hmm That. Yeah. That. <laughs> okay. Um. Can I, can I make sure. a statement here and now that will probably get Uh-oh. me in all kinds of trouble? Go for it. But I'm going to say it anyway. I think that was thrown in simply to throw Fair in enough. a movie reference. Fair enough. There is nothing in no. the scene no, that follows <laughs> that has any connection to anything in the Thomas Crown Affair other than the fact that there's an armed robbery, which occurs yeah, in hundreds true. of movies. This particular type of an armed robbery, this particular type of a situation where you're going in and robbing somebody who's the actual thief, but nobody knows it, absolutely no relationship to the Thomas Crown I wonder Affair. if the reference that Steele was attempting to tenuously make is to the fact that Thomas Crown in the film steals things just to have them. He doesn't intend to unload them anywhere. He just wants to keep them for himself. And Considine has the, the stone in his home and is obviously not planning to unload it or no or or someone would know about it that would yeah. that would have to be the only connection because other than that like i said there is absolutely no, no relationship between no the scene, the scene that, that follows, follows is really crude and sloppy and silly <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's almost uh, well, yeah, it's like almost why, first of all why take uh, maury's car why we already know that this car that is a car. piece of crap it was once upon a time a great automobile, mm-hmm. no doubt about it, but they, can, they can't find fourth gear. Like, why, why, why yeah. would you not bring the rabbit? Uh, both cars have been in the compound, so it's not like they can argue, well, we have to take this car because he's seen the rabbit. He's seen the Dodge Charger, too. Yeah, so it's not yeah. like they're, they're hiding anything. So, I, you know, despite the fact that they're wearing masks, Laura, they're really not hiding anything because all I have to do is look at the car. Laura takes her mask off. Right? Well, she does once she gets back in the car. But he sees her, right? So yeah, what happens true. when he when he gets out of jail? And not only that, but Barbudi, Banducci, and Bandoli, when they come running out, clearly can see her. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's dumb. Well, so by that point, I guess she's presuming that she's a non-entity to them. Right. The issue is Considine. And in a weird kind of way, the board of directors actually owes Laura a debt of gratitude because True. she uncovered, yeah, you know, the dishonesty in, in Considine. And so, where did they get the guns? Are they real? Because that's some pretty heavy hardware. They can't even find hey, bullets Hollywood in their own prop office. Store. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy anything at a prop store. <laughs> They presume that they're real. So, you know, you would think yeah. that they are real enough that somebody can't really tell. Fair enough. It'd be funny if but they were yeah, water it would guns. Be, <laughs> yeah. 
Nerf gun. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Finger slipped on the trigger. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they, they go in with these guns. They demand Considine open his safe. He refuses. His associates demand he listen to them. And of course, once he opens the safe and the men see the stone, they are big mad. Oh, so yeah. they take the diamond and Constantine begs them to take him with him. They mm-hmm. do. And of course, that's when they get in the car and the car isn't starting and the whole bit. And it's just like, why would and you And Laura, Laura Mirrors Steele's <laughs> comment earlier. How can a man let somebody... an automobile get in this condition? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's cute. And then, of course, that's kind of the the coda the of the episode where they're coming back into the office. They're recounting the heist. They seem to be getting along. And this is where Steele has obviously figured out that the kiss was not what he thought it was. Because here he seems to know and he he's playing the angle. He he tells them they should run along because they're clearly chomping at the bit. Bernice is confused, and Steele says that working in close quarters has altered Mur- Murphy and Laura's relationship. Sarcasm. Sarcasm. So but he it's funny because he has at that point, Murphy smiles kind of smugly, but Laura obviously knows he's being disingenuous. And mm-hmm. when he says he's happy for both of them, he walks toward the office. Laura follows. And that's when he's like, setting the record straight. Damn it. You know? <laughs> that's when he clues in that this mm-hmm. it's, I hope, hope, hopefully he clues in that this is not going anywhere at all. Yeah. But yeah, so at the end, Steele tells Laura he's going to step aside and he's obviously, again, this magnanimous gesture is playing all an sure. angle, but she she, she knows it. She says that you're attempting to step back, so I'll pull you in further. And he kind of grins and that's kind of where the web the episode, the webisode, you <laughs> 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 wascally won it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, pretty, <laughs> it's where the episode freezes. Yeah, oh, poor Murphy. I, 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 Murphy was a bit of a jerk in this one, but I still, overall, I still like Murphy. I still feel sorry for Murphy. I still want him and Laura to get together. <laughs> You're a Murphy shipper. In, Ooh, that is a, that's in a an position. Alter, okay, in an alternate universe. In an alternate universe. <laughs> I, I have inconsistent feelings about Murphy because I feel like his character is inconsistent in the, in that he, this doesn't feel like what we've seen previous to this. And then, yes. yeah. So there are times where I genuinely like him and there are times when I just want to smack him upside the head repeatedly. You know, Not and I, I wonder if, because <laughs> you, you've commented, you commented at the beginning of this, that Glenn Gordon Karen's handling of Murphy yeah. is different than what the other writers had, had been doing. And I wonder if that might not been ha- one of the factors that caused Glenn Gordon Karen to move off of the show after the first season. Yeah. I wondered that or too. maybe get kind of gently moved towards the door. <laughs> gently <and> nudged. <laughs> yes. Cause he seems to want to write his characters a bit more rugged and a bit more. It's a bit more like, well, this is how I see the character. So that's how the character should yeah. be written as opposed to, well, but that's not, the way the character is supposed to be. I mean, that's not this character. Well, but that's what I want. So that's what I'm going to write. (laughs) Exactly. No. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of got that feeling too. 
but he wanted Murphy to be a bit more forceful and a bit more assertive and a bit more, and not that he's not assertive, but assertive in a way that feels negative as opposed to a positive thing. Cause assertiveness yeah. is not a bad trait, but when you've got somebody saying like, I'm not interested and you're con- saying, well, I'm just going to keep trying. Yeah. Kind of like the way Glenn Gordon Karen handles Murphy's character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it'll be an interesting thing to follow to see if he's, I don't know if he's got any more episodes from this season, but these last two have set a pattern. So yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on the episode? I think that's no. pretty covered. <laughs> uh, we covered so, pretty well. Yeah. We've got our website, steelwatching.com, show notes, links to Amazon US, Amazon Canada, as well as our merch, t-shirts, sweaters, plausible deniability, ethics. He fit the suit. I've already bought four, five, five. We, we may add that uh, rabbit hole. <laughs> I may and have a problem. From the last episode, we may add plaus- <laughs> uh, deniable plausibility. I don't deniable know. Deniable plausibility. I like it. I think that's, don't make me buy more things because I will. <laughs> I will. Uh, <laughs> so, well, yeah. and after you're done spending all your money at our merch store, you can follow the podcast on our website. You can go to the official Steel Watching Facebook group, our Twitter page, our Instagrams. You're going to find all, all the links to all of those things on our website, as well as the link to the Facebook Steel Watchers fan group. Join us. Yes. Join us. Get all sorts of fun stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then the next episode is yours. So um, Steel crazy after all these years. Yep. A, Which is, is another kind of Murphy, Murphy heavy episode, I think. It is. Yes. So. It's a good one. Yeah, it is a good and one. And I, I think it's I think it's more back into character for Murphy than this one was. Yes. I think yeah. I think you're gonna it definitely is. agree on that one. Yep. All right. All right. I think we're good. So we'll right. see everybody next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> hey everybody. Eric and Sarah here. Just a quick announcement to let you know that. Yes, we do appreciate everyone who listens, participates, and supports the podcast in whatever way you do. But we wanted to give an extra thank you to those who are so graciously giving to be monthly financial supporters. We are making live streams of our recording sessions available to anyone who is a monthly financial supporter. So not only can you watch us live as we record our podcast episodes, you will be getting access to the raw, behind-the-scenes, unedited version of episodes before they get officially released. And Sarah, does that include our mistakes and screw-ups and our humiliating... (laughs) (laughs) Every single one of them. (laughs) Every single one of them, yes. So again, this is just an extra thank you to those who are going above and beyond. But whether you choose to become a monthly financial supporter or not, we still love you. We want to say we thank you for your support your encouragement, and your feedback. If you want to become a monthly financial supporter, please visit our website at www.steelwatching.com to sign up.